morning. Welcome to Eastlake Online and welcome to the people who are here uh, this morning in person. We are so thankful that you made it out or took time this morning to watch this on the split screen with the Seahawks over here and me over here uh, and then the volume on just whatever. Whatever works. We're, we're glad you made it happen. Thanks for making it uh, work. Uh, welcome to week one of a new series today called Through the Looking Glass. It's going to be a series on wonder, a series that I'm really looking forward to. Our last series and kind of a lot if you've been around Eastlake for any length of time because um, of just styles and how I think and how I learn. A lot of what we do typically is focused more, a little bit more on history, and, and, and perhaps you like that and perhaps you don't or whatever. Um, but the, in, in, when you talk about historical and why things took place, there's not a lot of wonder in history, right? I mean, you're basically looking at what took place and maybe why it took place, but there's no like I wonder, the only wonder involved in history is when you wonder about alternative timelines, like why did it take place this way and not some other way, and which is why we like the Man in the High Castle show, right? Um, what if, if the whole uh, World War II had turned out differently? But um, that's, uh, that's a little bit different. And, and so even though maybe you've grown up in church or maybe you've heard sermons or whatever, they've kind of dealt with wonder a little bit better than, than, than we have, perhaps. If, if that's been the case, I think you're really going to like this series, because wonder is all about unknowns. It's about going uh, out in nature and wondering how all of this got to be the way that it is, and why it still continues to function, and why after nine months or nine years or however long it's been since you went out camping, and you go out there and you watch this like nature uh, environment continue to function and the river continue to go and it never gets too big and it never gets too small and, and the animal, the, the system, everything works and, and it doesn't, and it's not because of human attention. It's not because we got a bunch of forest rangers out there just piling things up and making sure that it works for when we show up with our tent, right? It's just, it's just happening. And, and the, the crazy thing about that is we know that that's not typically natural because when we go on vacation and we come home, our house is a mess, our yard's a mess, everything's a mess. Everything gets worse when we go away, and yet things continue to function, and at this ex insanely extreme complex level when it goes out to nature. There's, so there's been times where we've gone out, and the, the most spiritual thing maybe you've ever done is looked at nature and said, my gosh, how in the world could I look at this and, and not think that there's some sort of designer behind this thing, right? Happenstance only takes you so far. This feels too programmed. This feels too something, someone, somehow, something is involved in all of this. And I don't know what that is. Um, and, and that sort of uh, uh, natural revelation has drawn a lot of people towards spirituality. It's forced a lot of people to be like, hey, I'm not really into the whole church thing. And it feel, organized religion feels like political and, and money grabs and all kinds of stuff. But I just can't deny the reality of going outside and living in a state of wonder about how this universe came to be and why it continues to exist the way that it exists. And, and this feels just way too dialed in to not have some sort of backdrop behind it. In wonder, the unknowns don't have to drive us away from the divine. They're actually sirens singing us towards something that we can't quite put words to. And I don't mean sirens like alarm bells. I mean like those sirens in Odysseus's tale about the, them calling us towards something, drawing us towards it. And it's not like overt words. It's just the way that they sing, the way that they do something, that it draws us in to live with this state of, there has to be something here. So in the sermons that I've heard on Wonder before, maybe you've heard on uh, before, oftentimes the default is to space because it's the big unknown for us. It's out there. We don't really know how all of this exists. And it wouldn't take long for me to do some research to like blow our minds with wonder about space. Like I just want you to, on your own time, not right now because you're watching the Seahawks game and me at the same time, but at some point 
I want you to go and I want you to Google what is the heaviest thing in the universe, right? And Google the, specifically the weight of a black hole and just how it's, it's like it's a hole. Why does it weigh so much? Our holes don't weigh anything, right? Um, it's amazing. It's like, it's like everything that you think of is, it just doesn't take, doesn't work. Uh, space or time operates differently in space. Like what? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that whole interstellar thing is like when you're out there, a year feels like 100 years or whatever, and you come back. and It's like, no, time always works. Time is a constant. We should live with time. Is a, you should live with time is a constant, okay? That's how we should live. And yet there's, all, there's still in the back of our minds that, yes, that's generally true, but not always true, right? That's crazy stuff. That's like, that's wonder. This idea of a rapidly expanding universe. Like uh, for a lot of people, when they grew up in school, science was taught like the universe is sort of static. It's, it's, it's immense, it's huge, it's here, but it's, it's, um, we have our little place and it's kind of a finite boundaries even though we could never know the boundaries. And what we know now based on kind of the research in the last, I don't know, 100 years, 200 years, is this universe is rapidly expanding. It's still growing. It's just, it's just go, like it seems like it started somewhere and then it just is good going. That's, inc- that's crazy. That's crazy talk. That's wonder in this way. But to start off our talk on wonder, we are going to look at something a little bit closer to home, a little bit more simplistic. We're going to talk about my wife's favorite flower when it comes to wonder. You guys, a red poppy. No plant has been more studied for its medicinal purposes than the poppy plant. And perhaps you know the reason why involved in all of this. Um, these leaves eventually fall away. And what's left is this little bulb, and inside of this bulb is this gooey substance um, that comes in the, that we call opium, right? And this opium can be shaped into all kinds of things, and, and you know this because you watched Ozark. Um, from, from, from opium, humans have derived, amongst other things, codeine, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, uh, and heroin, as well as almost 200 other drugs, all containing this one, one particular molecule that's only found here. It's called the morphine molecule. And if you've never seen or heard of the morphine molecule, here's what it looks like, but that doesn't matter because this means nothing to us, right? <laughs> but we know what it feels like, or if some of us know what it feels like, this thing. We've never seen it, but we know what it feels like. About a year and a half ago, I was having some significant stomach issues, uh, and it would just spark up at night, and it would be, it would be uh, an absolute, like the worst pain I've ever felt. Felt like, some, like an alien. Remember the show Aliens where the alien like rips through the chest? That's what it felt like in human form. Um, and so I'm, we're trying to figure this stuff out and found out I have a, uh, a, a not properly active gallbladder, uh, gallstone attacks, which is kind of like a kidney stone, but like in your ribs, like underneath your ribs in the place that you just can't get relief. The only relief was consistent movement if I just kept moving around. So I would literally um, walk around my neighborhood in a sweatshirt, in a hoodie sweatshirt at two in the morning, which is not a great long-term solution if you figure that out. So I eventually started being like, I need to get this looked at and worked on and, and it's gallbladder removed. And, and um, anyways, I had this thing scheduled and, uh, uh, but it was kind of, they were trying to figure out other things. They were trying to figure out what if we modified diet? What if we like go, okay, no fried foods, no fatty foods, no red meat, no nothing, and, and just try and eat better, right? Because this is their, always their solution. Instead of like pills and surgery, let's Let's modify this. And so I was doing good. I was doing great. In fact, I, I went in one night and, uh, or I had, I had another episode and the only thing I had had that day was salad and water. And I went to the doctor and I said, listen, I'm an immense, I've been in a car accident before, a really bad one in the ICU for days. I've, this hurts more and I can't do any better than salad and water. That's the best that I can offer you. So I need you to do something for me here, right? 
so eventually they, they got this thing scheduled and I was uh, scheduled to have another follow-up appointment, my last one to schedule something. And on the night before that appointment, I had another attack and it got so bad that I drove, I, I literally, I remember um, at one point waking my wife up and in the middle of the line going, it's another, it's another attack, it's, I feel horrible. Listen, if you find me on the floor, tell them it was right here. Okay, tell them, tell them I, was, I was in a lot of pain and it was, it was this. I'm, I'm walking her through the process of finding her deceased husband. Um, anyways, uh, and then at, at some point at, I think, 2 or 3 in the morning, I said, I, that's it. I got to go to the ER. This is, this is not great. So I drove to Cadillac over here. And I got in, and I waited for two hours, um, and that's fine, whatever. Um, and just walking up and down the hallways, because I said constant movement. And I get in, and uh, they gave me the scale. What's your scale on a, on a 1 to 10? And I said, I don't know. Probably, I mean, I'm in the ER at 3 in the morning, so it's not great. I don't I show up here for fun, you know what I mean? I've never, I've never been in the hospital other than by my own decision uh, ever in my life. So I'm not like this guy who's just like, oh, I got a little headache. Can you come and give me some stuff, right? So I go in, and they, they say, all right, we're going to give you some morphine. And I said, that sounds like what they give you on the battlefield right before you're about to die. I'm like, what is this, right? And uh, so they, they inject this IV into my arm, and then they give me morphine. And I'm telling you guys, listen, <laughs> I know that this can go sideways, and there are people who deal with addictions and stuff like that. I, and, and for the, in that moment, I was like, I get it. I get it. It was electric. It was unbelievable. It was, it was amazing. I, I fell asleep. I, the pain was gone immediately. I've never experienced that sort of relief in this way. Um, tobacco, cocoa leaves, and other plants have evolved to be pleasurable and ad- addictive to humans, but nothing stands up like this idea of a morphine molecule. Uh, it's, it's ability, it's, it, it's evolution over the years to kind of meet exactly the pain receptors that we have and also to provide the pleasure receptors of seeing a puppy or a newborn child or whatever. It's that times like a thousand. It's, uh, unfortunately, it has this heaven and hell side to it, right? It, is, it has given us the ability in, in medicinal formats to operate and do surgeries that would otherwise be an, impossible because of the shock to the system and the body and the pain and all that involved. Uh, and, and so in that way, it's provided heaven. And then also it's been incredibly so addictive. They haven't figured out how to not make it addictive enough to be a resource in that way. And so they have to be incredibly careful about how they distribute this sort of thing. Um, and uh, it, it's so unique in that aspirin has a certain, and I'm not like a doctor, so like, you know, you might want to research this more, but from what I've found out, um, aspirin and, and Advil and all that kind of stuff can only take you so far in terms of pain. And no matter how much you take, um, there's always a wall that it hits. It can only go so far. But the unique thing about morphine is that there is no wall. The more morphine you get, the more pain is resolved. And this is just why they used it in the battlefields in World War I and World War II um, for the people who were basically dying out to give them a humane sort of death um, to relieve the pain in the moment as they're literally bleeding out without any uh, limbs or, or so. Um, and the crazy thing about it is as good as it is, the reason that there's a hell side to it is it exacts a vengeance for those who try and get off it, unlike any other drug. Uh, anybody who dares to stop trying to, 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 uh, to use it um, finds out real quickly it produces drowsiness, constipation into physical pain. Its withdrawal causes the exact opposite, but in greater formats in this way. It's almost, as some scientists talk about it, like a jilted ex-lover. No other molecule in nature provides such merciful pain relief then hooks humans so completely and punishes them so mercilessly for wanting their freedom from it. It is the Carrie Underwood keys on the car sort of drug. That's my language. That's not theirs. They didn't say that, but I said that. 
It became the uh, poster child for a, um, a uh, kind of molecule for an age of decadence because no amount is ever enough. It creates an even higher tolerance and the reason, and it's because it's difficult to expel. The reason is because in almost every other molecule in terms of um, pain relief and whatever, when it's done working its system, it eventually dispels itself uh, through some sort of water-soluble glucose in the human body, which then expels it. But the morphine molecule is so unique it doesn't expel from your body like that. It's like the only one that doesn't. It just simply half-lifes half itself into indetectability, and it's always in you. I have morphine in me from the time that my stomach hurt so bad I went to the doctor, right? And here's, here's the unique thing about morphine in this, this book that I've been reading on, on all of this stuff. We, this is a, somebody talking, a doctor, interview with a doctor. We still can't explain why this happens this way that it doesn't get expelled, it just half-lifes into indetectability. It just doesn't follow the rules. Every other drug in the world, thousands of them follows this rule. It really is almost like somebody designed it that way, diabolically so. Now, isn't that interesting to you? Isn't that wonderful? Not wonderful in a good way, but full of wonder, right? Because that's, that's the opposite way. Doesn't that make you love Jesus more? I'm just kidding about that last one. But <laughs> there's so much wonder in why why from this one plant could we receive so much heaven and so much hell? And why does it operate so uniquely? And why after 2,000 years and after our ability to send people to the moon and back and make phone calls to wherever we want, whenever we want, in a moment's notice, why do we get this one thing where we're like, yeah, we still haven't figured that out. We don't, we don't know why it does it this way. That's insane. That's crazy. Often we equate science with answers, and rightfully so. We've had hundreds and thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of why. Why does this thing work this way? Why does this work this way and not this way? Just in the past 10 years, think of the technological advancements in terms of medicine and life and technology and whatever. You would think our list of unknowns is getting smaller. Like scientists are worried about getting rid of their jobs. Like we're going to be outsourced. We know everything now. Like what are we going to do? And yet it seems like what we see in the world of wonder is that it doesn't operate that way. It's like the more that we find out things, the more that we reveal, the more that we clean up, the more we realize how much we don't know. Like, this, like the kid who's supposed to pick up their toys. If you're, if you're a parent, you've ever watched these kids. You're like, go, go pick up the playroom, right? And they get this armful of toys and it's so full, they reach down to pick up an, the last toy and three fall out. And then they go, oh, I got three more. And they go down and reach this one and things fall out. And they're like, and they're just never done. They're just never done. Or, or, or as a parent, you've done this with laundry. You're like, I do. I grab this all this laundry and moving it from this to this, and we're just falling out all over the place. And we bend down and pick it up, and, and more gets revealed, and more gets revealed. Right now, th thousands of ocean-dwelling salmon. Literally today, we passed on the bridge today, and there were like at least 50 boats within the visible eye from the Richland Bridge. Uh, fishing for these salmon who are currently swimming up the Columbia River into tributaries because something in their fish brains triggered them to go. The ocean's not good enough. Got to go home. Got to go home. And they don't even, they were so young when they were home. There's, there's like, they, they figure out how to go from wherever they are. And it's almost as if somebody flips a switch and they go, I got to turn around. I got to head back. I got to go die in the Columbia River, right? Uh, Natchez, that's where I want to go, right? And so it's like, it's, it's insane. They're out in the middle of the ocean and then they swim back. And we're like, we don't exactly know why. There's nothing in their blood. It's something about habits and this. And it's not DNA, but it's something. We just, we're not sure. We can't. We can observe it, we can predict it, we measure it, we're just not exactly sure why it happens. That sort of wonder is what makes this world absolutely incredible that we live in. Wonder is alive and well in our technologically advanced world. So let's bring it a little closer to home for us. What do you wonder about? What is it that you wonder about? 
When you look at your kids, right, and you're trying to school from home right now, and you look at them and you say, why do my kids act the way that they act? Or maybe perhaps more directly to them, why are you the way that you are, right? <laughs> what, what is going on in your little brain to think that this is okay, that this is what your teacher wanted from you, that this is what appropriate schooling is? What makes you think, right? who do you think you are, right? Something along those lines. What's something that you, maybe you've wondered about that you don't wonder about anymore because you've figured it out and there's no wonder there anymore? Because eventually, things get, sometimes things get figured out and we don't wonder any longer how this thing works. I don't wonder anymore if my phone or how my phone kind of works, even though I really don't know how it is. I just kind of like, I've gotten so used to just using it and doing it that I'd be shocked if it didn't, right? Um, we wonder because sometimes our frame of reference, the window at which we look at the world or the lens or the perspective that which we look at doesn't provide us with all the answers. We all have a framework that helps us make sense out of life and helps us make decisions that make sense to us based on the framework that we have. In fact, all of our decisions about what's right and what's wrong, what's fair and what's not fair, what's, what, what qualifies as justice, what qualifies as injustice, what's important to us and what's not really all that important come to us because of a frame of reference of how we live. We know this happens in ethics. We, we can uh, we can see this happen in our world, but we, in, in terms of technology and looking at why these fish do this and why morphine works like that, but that feels like science and technology. But when, it, when we bring it a little close to home, we go, you think things are right. You, you watched the debates on Tuesday, and you said to somebody, I don't see how anybody could vote for somebody like that, right? And you, in your frame of reference goes, I don't understand that. Because you, you know, or you think you know, here's, what's, here's what I think is true and right. And I'm going to go off of this. And it influences how we behave, what we, uh, what we believe about things, and what we hope for, and, and the kind of a future that we hope for ourselves and for our family. We never approach anything from a blank slate. We always have this perspective that we're coming from. And when we're young, oftentimes we adopt it from our parents, right? We are a product of our environments. We were raised a certain way. And until then, then we get to a certain spot where we realize we know more than our parents. What were they thinking, right? Then we adapt the thing that they gave us, this framework that they gave us, based on our education, our upbringing, our history, the books that we read, or the schools that we went to. We, we adopted, then we adapted, and then some of us got to the spot where we're like, okay, our parents did know more than we did, and we just do whatever. We've, had, we've gone through life long enough, and so we go back to the adopted method or whatever. But there's always this kind of evolution of kind of what we believe. When life doesn't add up to the framework, it leaves us wondering. When we look at things and we, 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 don't, we can't explain why this works the way that it works, we wonder what is it that we're missing. And oftentimes when we're wondering in that way, we find ourselves then wandering to try and find answers. So wondering leads to wandering. And when it comes to our faith, this has been absolutely true. You grew up, we grew up, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I grew up with a framework of parents. My parents are pastors. That's kind of unique. But um, um, this is what we believe about faith, and this is what we do. And then, and then all of a sudden, things happen in life, and things happen with your life, and you went off to college, and somebody raised up questions that you never thought about asking, or you, it was too off limits to ask those questions, but then you felt like you deserved it to, to, to pay attention to those questions, and they didn't line up with the framework that you were given, Right? Um, and, and, and they didn't match up, and, and then you begin to wonder, maybe I'm blinded to something. Maybe, maybe this isn't true. Maybe what I believe is sort of limited, and that led to a certain sort of wandering in that way, right? And then you found a new framework to help answer your questions, and we're just going through life trying to make sense of faith, of life, of how to do things, of how to make money and provide for our families and live a, a pretty good life and be a good person. So this is especially true of faith, though, and, and that's the angle. This is a church, so we're going to talk about how this relates to our 
faith. Why uniquely in our faith, when, when we come up with things that we have, have said, this is what we believe, and then things happen in life that we cannot deny, um, and it doesn't fit in our framework of reference, what do we do with that? That's, this is how Christianity started, by the way. Christianity started because a group of people saw something. They saw their best friend be crucified at the hands of the oppressive empire, which is not unique. They'd seen that before. But what they hadn't seen is a resurrection three days later and this motivation to then go and how that changes everything. And, and their frame of reference, what you see in the book of Acts is them trying to go, here was our frame of reference, but now we have this Jesus thing that doesn't quite fit into this frame of reference. So what are we gonna do with Jesus? And the New, the, the New Testament, the, the book of Acts and, and Paul and his letters to the churches are them trying to go, that old Jewish frame of reference doesn't quite answer everything that we have anymore. And we are wondering what to do with Jesus. And some of us are wandering away from some sort of faith in this way. Our frame of reference morphs and changes all the time. We, hate, we used to hate it when our parents drove us to the dentist. Now we drive ourselves there, Right? What's the difference? Something in us changed. We realize we need to do this. Isn't it possible? For those of you, and, and, and this, this entire series is gonna be directed in, the, in this way. If for, if for you, your faith, at, your, your frame of reference for your faith never answered the questions that you were asking, and so you begin to wonder where this all fits, and then perhaps you begin to wander, um, in specifically in, in those things, I, I want to invite you back into a new perspective of what this could potentially look like. And we've been wrong in our, our frame, of refer, frame of reference before, right? We've looked at things in, in perspectives, and we've actually been wrong before. Isn't it possible that your frame of reference is incorrect? I mean, you were sure that she was the one, right? You were sure that he was the one, and now you're looking for a way out of this relationship. You, you had to have it. We're, we're going to borrow against everything else to kind of buy this thing, uh, and then now we wish we never bought it. We've been so mad before, and then we heard the rest of the story. We were so mad at somebody, and then perspective came in, and it changed our thing. So we've been wrong before. So uh, my, my hope is to kind of challenge your perception on why faith isn't important for you, maybe, or whatever, and your frame of reference is, I'm going along, I'm doing it, but I'm not sure exactly what I believe in this. Um, I want, I want to get us to the spot where we realize that when pressed, we'd be the first to admit that sometimes our frame of reference is limited, and what are we going to do when we begin to wander, and that leads us to a sense of wandering away. Now, What's beneficial for us is that we are not unique in this. This is not an American problem. This has been a biblical problem, a, a, a human problem since the inception of time. And what we see in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be focused on, on, on a book specifically, um, at least this week, it, it called Hebrews, a letter, a first century document uh, from an unknown author. And that was a, kind of a point of co a contention for this book and, and why it was so late in terms of being added into the biblical canon. Uh, most of the books, one of the prerequisites was that you had to know the author. We had to know it was Paul who wrote Colossians, Paul who wrote this, or Matthew who wrote this. But in the book of Hebrews, the author does not identify themselves. Their Greek is too good for Paul, which is like a slam against Paul a little bit. But um, the way that it reads, it reads more artistic. It reads more of like an Enneagram 4 than Paul's Enneagram 5. So it like doesn't make sense in that way. And I can't really explain that as much as you read the paper and you read an art book a little bit differently than, than how that works. And, and Hebrews reads a, a lot differently uh, in this way. And what we see in Hebrews too is heavy, heavy use 
of what we call Old Testament, they would call Jewish scriptures of the Tanakh, um, uh, this idea of all of these um, Jewish biblical writings being pulled in and infused into this almost sermon to a group of people who were wandering away from their faith, and this pastor or this author or this whatever preacher is writing to them, challenging them not to wander, but to maybe perhaps change their perspective. If, if something doesn't fit, maybe your original thing that you walked away from was wrong. Maybe we've been given now new information that helps us see a little bit more clearly in this way. Here's reasons why you shouldn't walk away from your faith. All right. So Hebrews chapter four, start here. He writes and he says this, therefore, since we, since we, he's gonna, he's gonna say, uh, there's a motivation for why you should hold on to your faith. And it's not since everything seems to be going really well. Therefore, since everything seems to be running so smoothly, since we resolved all of our wonder, since all of our questions are already asked, and it's simply a measure of obedience to a doctrine and you keep falling away, since we have, a, instead, since we have a great high priest, again, he's pulling this Old Testament, like this religious stuff where the, the great high priest was the closest in connection with God and you kind of, um, you kind of came along, he was, he was the mouthpiece of God to you and connected you to God. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, this is their language to say, here's what we think happened to Jesus after his resurrection from the testimony of the disciples. He ascended into heaven afterwards. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Since we have Jesus, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess not because everything's running so smoothly and not because we have all the answers, but there's this introduction to this idea of Jesus as the firm basis or foundation for our faith. The reason that we can continue to wonder about this world is, and, and, and have it not lead us towards wandering is because we have something so secure, according to this author of Hebrews, so secure in this person of Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter 12 and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since there have been so many people who have come before us, since there are people who are watching our every move, since there are fans in the stands, proverbially, and, and, and since we believe that we come from a, a, a background of people, again, these are a lot of them specifically in this book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians, people who had had, had a, a Jewish religion, Hebrew background, knew all of those things and are invited into this new sort of Christian take on this thing. Since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked, or let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What he's saying here is, listen, we've, we come from a past, we, come from, we have a heritage of a belief system that God wants to do something in the world and for the world. And what we thought was he's gonna do it through the nation of Israel. We are the chosen nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. And if God wants to make a statement, he's gonna do it through them, through us and the way that we live and the, the way that we interact with the world and the way that the things that we do. And what we figured out is God has made that statement come true, but not through the person of us, not through the people of us as a group, but through this person of Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus fast forwarded to the end, or God fast forwarded to the end, gave us Jesus, and now we are on this side. We have this person now to go off of. We have this foundation for our faith. Why in the world would we, 
being on this side of Jesus, wander from our faith when those who came before, who only had hopes of a Messiah, hopes of something, hopes of of a future, hopes of a God who interacted, even though there's 400 years of silence. And what we have here, we, we are in prime position. This is what he's saying. We know what God looks like now. We know what's expected of us. We have in this person of Jesus a very clear picture of what he wants and who he is. Why in the world would we bail now? We have people who stuck it out without Jesus. We are the lucky ones. We're on this side of things. Our perspective has now changed. And what's involved in this is you're gonna have to change your frame of reference to be able to, to, to be at the center of it to be now this person of Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. When you read through Hebrews, it's very highly Christological. Basically what it means is he's trying to equate Jesus with everything that they found important in their religion. High priests, lambs, sacrificial systems, temples, all of these things is like, that's of religious importance. He pulls it in to try and illustrate who Jesus is and why that's so important, that this is now the center of the faith. Go from this. Let this be the, the center of how you see the world. Let this be, you need to factor this into how you kind of move. And the frame of reference isn't a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's a person. And that is unique to Christianity, and it continues to be unique to us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not a book, not a church, not on a leader or a pastor, because I don't know what kind of a group, you know, or what kind of a religious upbringing you had. But if you've wandered away from your faith, then perhaps it was because at some point, whether overtly or through kind of some sort of subvertly or whatever, you are encouraged to fix your eyes on a leader, on a pastor, on a priest or something like that. Fix your eyes on them as, this, as he goes or she goes or whatever, as the success and oh my gosh, it's a great, the church is growing, it's doing this, or a, or a building or a church specifically. Your faith was founded on a church and as long as the church continued to be in existence and do good and the pastor didn't have an affair or sleep with the secretary, everything's good. And then we wonder and we watch all these affairs and stuff going on and we're like, oh my gosh, the state of Christianity is, in, is, is, is bad. It's not great. Well, that's because we've built it upon a person or a thing or a church or a singular expression of a church. And if there was no East Lake, is your faith in jeopardy? I hope not. That means your faith is in a church and not on, not on Jesus, which the author of Hebrews says, that's what it should be on. Not this, maybe a book. Maybe you grew up thinking that, or, or being taught, because you would never think this probably, but you were taught that your faith resulted on a book. Every, everything's true. This, th- whole, this whole thing is true. No matter if it's confusing or you can't understand it, all you need to know is it's true and it actually happened the way that it happened, the way that you initially read it with all of your context and all of that, right? Your faith is in this book and then you went off to college and somebody challenged this and, and questioned this and did some things. And did you know Paul probably didn't write Hebrews because it's too good for him, right? And you're like, ooh. And everything comes crashing down. If your faith is in a book, then it really doesn't even match up with the historical nature of the church. The church didn't have the Biblia, the Bible, for 400 years. Their faith was not found in a book. It was something different. It was found in a person, a Jesus person. Or maybe, maybe your faith growing up was founded in, like a, the, the foundational point of it was in an experience. And it was like, you know, I got to go to camp. I got to. I got to come to church, and I got to raise a hand, and I got to feel something. And it's got to be like, is is the emotional rush there? And sometimes it is, but then a lot of times it's it's not. And so then you begin to like wonder, is this even real? And if if your faith 
if the center of your faith is on an experience, then you would be right to question, I wonder if this is real, <laughs> or if it's based on a circumstance. If perhaps growing up, your faith was based on, well, when we get sick, we pray. And when we pray, God acts and he does things based on the level of our faith. And if we ask anything in his name, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and, and he, he wants to help us out, right? And, and so then somebody in your family got sick and you prayed and nothing happened. And you said, well, if that's the case, then I wonder if God's not real. Well, if the foundation of your faith was circumstantial, then you would be right to wonder. And I would say you'd be right to wonder too. And so in history, what we see is when it's based on any of these things, yeah, you're gonna wonder. And yeah, you probably did wander away. And what Hebrews is trying to say is, that was, never, that was a shaky foundation to start with. Your faith was never meant to be in those things. Of course you would wander. Of course you would wonder. Of course your frame of reference wouldn't provide enough questions or enough answers to the questions that you have. If it was never centered around a person, specifically the person of Jesus, it just, it's gonna fall flat. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, or another French translation has the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end of our faith is in Jesus. And Paul tried to make it so clear, take away, take away Jesus and his crucifixion and you're left with nothing, right? All I'm here to do is pre pre to preach Jesus and him crucified. That's the point of it. This is where it all rises or falls. And this is where we put our, this is where as, as a church and as, as a Christian or whatever, we should push all our chips in on that, right? Not on this place. I love this place. I love this community. We're trying to figure out what it means to grow in the teachings and the ways of Jesus. <clears throat> but, um, if it ever becomes anything other than that, expect the, expect the perspective to not have all the answers for us. And then he goes on. And this next part is so important because we've never experienced the brutality of a, of a public execution by crucifixion, right? I mean, we know about it. We see it at Easter and we see pictures of it and, and we see crosses everywhere, but we've never like seen it. That's such a brutal way to go that it was outlawed almost immediately as it was uh, enforced. I mean, it was so... Okay, well, we're gonna have standards for that, right? We've never smelled a crucifixion. We've never watched as somebody pulled a body off of a cross, right? So there's some, some irony in what comes next that we probably miss because that wasn't, we don't live in an oppressed empire that uses crucifixion as a picture of why you should never rebel against the empire. For the joy set before him he endured the cross. He equates enduring the cross with joy, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the father. Like there was a sense of joy that comes from what he went through. Not, I mean, not that it wasn't painful, but like he saw it and for the joy set before him went through it. And then he says to them, and I think he says to us and to me and to you or whatever, consider him, verse three, chapter 12, consider him. If Jesus then is the foundation of the faith and not a church, not a building, not a pastor, not a book, uh, not experiences and not circumstances, then how do we respond in a world filled with wonder that, causes, that could cause us to kind of wander away and wander away from our faith? His recommendation, how do we live with this, is then to consider him, to put him at the center of this, to have 
him and a picture of him and a thought of how do I live my life and what do I think is fair and right and what do I think is right and wrong and what I think is just and injustice comes from a basis of what did Jesus say about it. Not what do I think is right or what does the newspaper tell me how I should think or Twitter tell me how to think. It's a different basis altogether. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, so that you will not wonder and eventually wander. If once upon a time you wondered and then you wandered, if you prayed for healing and it never came so, that you, so then you left, um, then my question to you, my thing moving forward as a part of a three or four part series that we're talking on is, what was the faith that you lost fixed on and fastened to? The, the faith that perhaps you walked away from as a teen or as a college student or as an adult or whatever, what do you think it was fixed on and fastened to? Where, if it was the proverbial ladder of your faith leaning, and when that got removed, it went away. Because if it was anything other than Jesus, then yeah, I can't even blame you. I probably would do the same thing or have done the same thing. But we're not given that out from the author of Hebrews. The invitation is to say the core of Christianity is in a person and not anything else. Circumstantial and experience-based faith will not survive the pleasures or the pressures of life. So the invitation is to then realize that we live in a world of incredible wonder. And there will be things that come out that challenge the frame of reference that we live in. And it always does. It does with how we think politics should operate, technology should operate. We're living with the best version that we know now. But outside things will come and we'll change. And then we'll all of a sudden we'll believe this and then we'll believe this and we'll believe this. And when it comes to our faith, the Christian take, the angle that the New Testament invites us into is you make Jesus the core of that. You make his teachings about love and why, uh, what it means to uh, walk in obedience to the Father, to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then the second commandment is to do likewise to the people who are around you, to the people that he loves, to your brothers and sisters in the faith and in life and world and a new common shared humanity. You live in that way. You live with that as the core of your being. Your ladder is leaning on the most secure thing possible. And it will help you incorporate all of this new wonder in this world. So, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about what that might look like, and I would love to invite you back next week to hear part two.